get back together with Sarah again, are you? Startled by the question, Warren looked over. Georgia returned his gaze. It was remarkable, really, the way she could read his mind sometimes. The girl lowered her headphones. Dad, don't do it. She's a real ball buster. Watch your mouth, Georgia. He pulled a small white envelope from the folder. You know, I don't think there's a woman on earth that would pass muster with you. Do you want me to stay a widower the rest of my life? He said this with a little more force than he'd intended. Georgia's only response was to roll her eyes and replace the headphones on her head. He looked at Georgia another moment. Then he sighed, took hold of the door again, and yanked it open. Instantly, furnace-like air boiled in. Warren slammed the door, waited for Georgia to hoist her backpack onto her shoulders and follow, then hopped over the shimmering tarmac to the transportation center. Inside, it was pleasantly chilly. The center was spotless and functional, framed in blonde wood and brushed metal. Glass-fronted ticket windows stretched in an endless line to the left and right, deserted save for one directly ahead. A monorail was already waiting at the loading zone, low-slung and silver, its doors open. Oversized windows curved up both sides, meeting at the transport mechanism that clung to the overhead rail. Warren had never ridden on a suspended monorail before, and he did not relish the prospect. He could see a scattering of riders inside, mostly men and women in business suits. An operator directed them to the frontmost car. It was spotless, its sole occupants a heavyset man in the front and a short, bespectacled man in the rear. Warren let Georgia take the window seat, then slid in beside her. Almost before they were seated, a low chime sounded and the doors came noiselessly together. There was a brief lurch, followed by silky acceleration. Welcome to the Utopia monorail a female voice said from everywhere and nowhere. It was not the usual voice Warren had heard on public address systems. Instead, it was rich, sophisticated, with a trace of a British accent. Travel time to the Nexus will be approximately eight minutes and thirty seconds. Suddenly, brilliant light bathed the compartment as the center fell away behind them. Ahead and above, dual monorail tracks curved gently through a narrow sandstone canyon. Warren glanced down quickly, then almost snatched his feet away in surprise. What he had supposed to be a solid floor was actually a series of glass panels. Below his feet was now an unobstructed drop of perhaps a hundred feet to the rocky canyon floor. He took a deep breath and looked away. Cool, Georgia said. Can you believe this? said a voice in his ear. Turning, Warren saw that a heavyset man had walked back through the car to take a seat across from them. He wore a painfully orange floral shirt had bright black eyes and a smile that seemed too big for his face. Like Warren, he had a small envelope in his hand. Pepper, Norman Pepper. My God, what a view. And in the first car, too. We'll have a great view of the Nexus. Never been here before, but I've heard it's outstanding. Outstanding. Imagine buying a whole mountain or mesa or whatever you call it for a theme park. So what's your specialty? Pepper asked. I'm sorry? The man shrugged his squat shoulders. Well, you obviously don't work at the park because y'all are riding the monorail in and the park hasn't opened yet, so you're not a visitor. That means you got to be a consultant or a specialist, right? So is everybody on the train, I'll bet. I'm an... I'm in robotics, Warren replied. Robotics? Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, came the echo. Uh-huh. He took a breath, opened his mouth for another question. What about you? Warren interjected quickly. At this, the man smiled even more broadly. He put his finger to one side of his nose and winked conspiratorially. Dendrobium giganteum. Warren spread his hands. Sorry? Orchids, the man sniffed. Thought you might have guessed when you heard my name. 
I'm the exotic botanist who did all the work at the New York Exposition last year. Maybe you read about it? Anyway, they want some special hybrids for the Athenaeum they're building in Atlantis. And they're having some problems with the night bloomers in gaslight. Don't like the humidity or something. He spread his hands expansively, knocking both his and Warren's envelopes to the ground. All expenses paid, first-class ticket, nice fat consultancy fee, and it'll look great on my resume, too. Warren nodded as the man retrieved the fallen envelopes, past his back. That he could believe. Utopia was supposedly so fanatical about the accuracy of its themed worlds that scholars were occasionally seen wandering around, slack-jawed, taking notes. Georgia was gazing around at the canyon, paying no attention to Pepper. Pepper glanced over his shoulder. How about you? Warren had almost forgotten the slightly built man with glasses sitting behind them. The man blinked back, as if considering the question. Smythe, he said. Pyro. Pyrotechnics? You mean like fireworks? The man smoothed his fingers over the tiny toothbrush mustache that grew in the shadow of his nose. I designed a special shows, like the recent six-month celebration. Pepper leaned a bit closer to Warren. So, you think it's true they got a nuclear reactor buried underneath the park? Pepper asked. Huh? Well, that's the rumor. I mean, just imagine the electrical overhead. The place is its own municipality, for heaven's sake. Think of the juice it must take to keep the whole place going. Air conditioning, rides, computers. I asked one of the hosts back in the center, and she said they used hydroelectric power. Hydroelectric? In the middle of the desert? I... Hey, look. There it is. The monorail had just banked around a particularly steep bend, and ahead, the canyon widened dramatically. Stretching from wall to wall, from the top of the canyon to its base, was a vast copper-colored facade, glimmering brilliantly in the morning sun. The only break in the facade was two tiny squares dead center, near the top, where the monorail tracks entered. Along the upper edge was the single huge word, Utopia, in letters of some mica-like substance that winked and glittered, appearing and disappearing with the angle of the sun. Atop and beyond, a huge geodesic dome arched over everything, a complex lattice of crystal polygons and metal webbing. At its apex, a flag rippled, the stylized logo of a violet bird on a field of white. The car fell silent as they glided forward into the shadow. 8.10 a.m. Warren followed the others down the monorail offloading ramp, Georgia in tow, gazing about curiously. The ceiling was open to the glass dome far above, framing a huge cloudless sky that arced over the nexus in a brilliant azure band. Before him, information kiosks and low, graceful fountains gleamed in the slanted bars of sunlight. Signs, large but discreet, directed visitors toward the park's four worlds, Camelot, Gaslight, Boardwalk, Callisto. The air was cool, a little moist, and full of muted sound, voices, the patter of water, some softer noise he couldn't identify. A group of youngish men and women were waiting at the base of the ramp. They wore identical white blazers and carried identical folders. They looked, in fact, as if they could have all been related. Warren wondered, only half in jest, if there were height, weight, and age restrictions for Utopia employees. He dismissed the thought as he saw one of the women walking briskly toward him. Dr. Warren, I'm Amanda Freeman, the woman said, shaking his hand. I'll be processing you into Utopia, giving you a brief orientation, she said. Her voice was pleasant, but almost as brisk as her walk. She nodded toward the small envelope he was carrying. A miniature barcode had been impact-printed along one edge. May I have that? He handed it to her, and she tore it open, upending it into her palm. Out tumbled another stylized bird, this one in green. She affixed it to his jacket. 
Please wear this pin while you're with us. Why? It identifies you as an external specialist. You have your pass card? Good. That and the pin will give you the backstage access you'll need. Is this your daughter? Georgia, yes. I didn't realize she was coming along. We'll have to get her a pin as well. Thank you. No problem. She can wait in child care services while you're processed. You can pick her up afterwards. Child care services? Georgia asked, her voice steely with indignation. Freeman smiled briefly again. Actually, it's the young adult division of child care services. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Georgia flashed Warren a dark look. Dad, this better be good, she muttered. I don't do Legos. They dropped Georgia at the nearby services desk, then proceeded down the central corridor of the Nexus. What's with the clocks? Warren asked as he struggled to keep up. He'd noticed that, although it was now quarter past eight, the digital clock set into the towering walls of the Nexus read 045. Forty-five minutes to zero hour. Utopia is open 365 days a year, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. At closing, the clocks start a 12-hour countdown. Let's the cast and crew know how much time they have left until opening. Come on, we'll take a shortcut through Camelot. She steered him through a forest of crowd rails and into a wide, empty queuing chamber. In the far wall stood half a dozen sets of metal doors. On cue, one of the doors slid back, and Freeman led the way into a cavernous, darkly appointed elevator. The doors closed again, and that same silky female voice said, You are now entering Camelot. Enjoy your visit. There was a muffled metallic thud, and the elevator came to life. Except, Warren noticed, it was neither ascending nor descending. It was moving forward horizontally. Is it a long way to the park itself? he asked. Actually, we're not really moving, Freeman replied. The car just gives the illusion of movement. Studies showed that guests find the worlds easier to adjust to if they believe it takes a journey, however short, to reach them. Then the doors on the far side slid open. Ahead lay a wide pavement of dark cobblestones, quaint buildings, some with thatched roofs, others with peaked gambrels, lined both sides, stretching ahead to what looked from a distance like a large village square. In the distance, he could see more towers and a notched, cruel-looking face of a mountain rising above a grassy hill, snow swirling around its summit. Far overhead, the soaring curve of the dome gave an illusion of endless space. The air smelled of earth and fresh-cropped grass and summer. Warren walked slowly forward, feeling a little like Dorothy, stepping out of her drab monochromatic farmhouse into Oz. Park employees hurried quickly here and there over the cobbles, but not in the jacketed uniform he had seen elsewhere. Here were men in party-colored tights, women in flowing robes and wimples, a knight in armor. What do you think? Freeman asked. It's amazing, Warren replied honestly. This way, Freeman said, turning down a side alley. She turned toward a two-story, half-timbered residence, lifting the iron latch of the front door. Warren followed her inside. To his surprise, the building was merely a shell, open to its roof. A plain gray door was set into the back wall, a finger geometry scanner and a card reader beside it. Freeman stepped up to the scanner, placed her thumb in the mold. There was a snap, and the door sprang open. Beyond, Warren could see the cool green glow of fluorescent light. Back to the real world, Freeman said, or as close as we get to it around here. And she motioned him through the doorway. 8.50 a.m. Sarah Boatwright, head of park operations, sat at the crowded conference table in her office, 30 feet below the nexus. 
It was ten minutes, utopia time, and the various park chiefs had gathered in her office for the daily pre-game show. She took a sip of her jasmine tea, feeling the warmth slowly spread through her limbs. This was the real start of her day. Not the alarm clock, not the shower, not the first cup of the morning. It all started now, when she gave the day's marching orders to her captains and lieutenants, when she took the helm of the greatest theme park ever built. And yet today, mingling with the usual sense of anticipation, was something else. Andrew is here, she thought. He's here, and he can't possibly know the real reason. It was the forced duplicity that made her wary. She felt it quite distinctly as she glanced around, mentally checking off faces. Research, infrastructure, gaming, food services, medical, guest relations, check, check, and check. Bob Alaco, head of security, sat at the far end of the table, solid as a bulldog and almost as short, his sunburned face impassive. They all looked back at her, alert, serious, attuned to her mood. She preferred things that way, orderly, businesslike, brisk. Few jokes were exchanged unless Sarah made the first overture. Fred Barksdale was the allowed exception, of course. His allusions to Shakespeare and dry English humor had the table helpless with laughter on several occasions. Freddie Barksdale, head of systems, with that oversized mop of blonde hair and the cute worry lines scribbled across his forehead. Just the sight of him sent a stab of affection through her that drove away thoughts of Andrew Warren, threatened to upset her brisk professionalism. She gave a brief managerial clearing of the throat, took another sip of tea, and turned to the group. Right, let's get it done. She glanced down at a sheet of paper on the desk before her. Estimated attendance today, 66,000. The system is running 98% operational. Any word on when Station Omega will be back online? Tom Rose, infrastructure chief, shook his head. The ride seems to check out fine, green board all the way. But the diagnostics keep giving us an error code, so the governors refuse to supply any juice from the grid. I want you to keep on it, Tom. Keep on it hard. That attraction is one of Callisto's biggest draws. We can't afford to give it a vacation. Fred will lend you a troubleshooting team if you want. Of course, Barksdale said, smoothing down the front of his tie as he spoke. Just one other thing. The external specialist, Andrew Warren, is arriving today. Noticing some blank looks, she went on. He's the robotic specialist who created the Utopia Metanet. Please give him any assistance he may need. When this announcement was greeted with silence, Boatwright stood up. Very well. We're at two minutes and counting. Let's saddle up. She turned to her desk as the group began to shuffle out of the office. When she turned back, only Fred Barksdale remained, as she'd known he would. Why is Warren coming today? he asked, elegant home county's accent sounding ever so slightly aggrieved. He wasn't due for another week. I moved up his visit. Couldn't you have informed me, Sarah? I'll have to get work.